Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Great. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition cost. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This evening, we'll be hearing from Dr. Caitlin Schindler. Dr. Schindler is a research professor at the Institute of World Politics and adjunct professor at Patrick Henry College. In addition to teaching, Dr. Schindler works for a U.S. defense contractor providing subject matter expertise research and analysis to various government customers, operations, and programs. Dr. Schindler obtained a Master of Arts in Strategic Intelligence from the Institute of World Politics in 2010 and completed her PhD on the historical origins of US public diplomacy at the University of Leeds. Dr. Schindler authored The Origins of Public Diplomacy in US Statecraft, Uncovering a Forgotten Tradition. Her current research is focused on the origins and evolution of Russian political warfare. Dr. Schindler, welcome and thank you for being with us today. Thank you for uh, inviting me to do this lecture. Uh, when I was asked to do the lecture, uh, I had to think about what topic I wanted to discuss. Uh, and as my area of focus is mostly on influence and propaganda, I wanted to incorporate that, but since the world is rather bleak these days, I wanted to ingrain or influence some, uh, some happiness in there too. So I thought what better way than to talk about jokes and humor and how they can be used as tools of influence or opposition. So without further ado, I will dive right in. Modern propaganda relies on emotions to overcome reasoning and logic. When we think about modern propaganda, we think of emotional propagandas from, uh, propaganda posters from World War I uh, that demanded people remember the Lusitania playing upon emotional outrage uh, and sadness over the loss of women and children, or the brutal images of the evil Hun which provoked fear. As today's lecture will highlight, what is less known is how humor has been used as a tool for influence. Prior to the US entrance into World War II, Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator ridiculed and denigrated Adolf Hitler, undermining the fear and image of the strong leader he sought to produce in other nations. The same concept was used by the US War Department, working with Warner Brothers and Disney to develop films to diminish public fear and unify people to fight against Nazi Germany and Japan. The power or the efficacy of humor as a tool for political opposition and change is minimized in political science research, but there is little critical study on the power or usefulness of humor as a tool of influence to change perspectives, dominant cultural and social narratives to advocate for political change. And what little critical study of this tool focuses primarily on democratic societies or focuses narrowly 
on the ability of political humor to spark regime change in an authoritarian uh, system. I want to discuss the power of political humor as a tool uh, among an array of other tools of opposition and political change to challenge the authority and the image of authoritarian regimes. It is somewhat surprising that humor and ridicule are not often considered as weapons of opposition, given the long history of dictators and absolute monarchs and tyrants attempting to censor and stamp out satire altogether. The relevance, of influence, uh, relevance and influence of satire was so great, Roman Emperor Augustus passed a law forbidding the practice where the punishment was death by whipping. And England forbade the publication of satire in 1599, likely later cramping Shakespeare's style. Satire also undermines the image and master narratives of authoritarian regimes. For the same reason, Hitler probably did not appreciate Charlie Chaplin's ridicule and why China's Xi Jinping loathes being compared to the cute, cuddly Winnie the Pooh. Ridicule and political satire undermines the use of fear and the image of power, strength, and authority. Authoritarian regimes use fear to reinforce their power and authority. As Machiavelli asked the question in The Prince, is it better to be feared or loved? When we look at authoritarian regimes, we see how they use the fear of both internal and external enemies, the fear of regime instability and existential threats, as well as the fear of punishment by the regime for any opposition or criticism. As humans, we respond to fear. Uh, we, when we respond to fear, we seek self-preservation. We tend to avoid risks or things that we find dangerous to our person, our loved ones, or our homes. While fear is a powerful emotion used among absolute monarchs, dictators, tyrants, and autocrats for centuries to retain their power and authority, humor is also a very powerful emotion and sometimes more powerful than fear. While we, fear can be isolating emotion, humor tends to be unifying. Political satire can be a simple relief valve for those living in oppressive regimes, but it can also provide a way to share concerns or grievances related to everyday problems or more serious problems related to regime inefficiency or capacity. Humor also provides hope. It can make something or someone who appears godlike or infallible, undefeatable, as fallible and human. By its very nature, human humor breaks the rules. Political humor is often also considered in very broad terms, making fun of a political leader or the institutions in a system. But jokes about political institutions often are often deemed relatively harmless. Even the Soviet Union allowed the ridicule of political institutions, but it depended on the punchline and what institution the joke mocked. Of more concern for authoritarian regimes are the jokes that ridicule a major pillar of the regime or the ideology that underpins the regime or worse still, the leaders themselves. To ridicule something is to make it ridiculous, stripped of any fanfare or pretension or power. As I will discuss later in this lecture, the ridicule of a leader within an authoritarian regime is of particular significance and why ridicule actually scares authoritarian regimes. 
ridicule denatures or erodes the power or potency of a regime's image and legitimacy, of legitimacy, authority, and most importantly, their power. Ridicule can act as a catalyst for opposition. Political satire is a type of counter-narrative to the political status quo, questioning defined narratives of the political regime. It's a, resistance is actually a feature of political satire. If we think about authoritarian regimes in both the 20th and 21st century, much of their existence is based on master narratives or core narratives, which provide authority and legitimacy among their citizens as well as the world. Political satire can call these narratives into question and are likely symptomatic of internal problems. In order to better understand why humor is feared by authoritarian regimes, I will begin by breaking down the importance of public perception and regime image within authority, authoritarian regimes. And to do this, I'm gonna draw parallels between the absolute monarchy of late 17th and 18th century France and authoritarian regimes of the 20th and 21st century. The major difference between the absolute monarchy of ancient regime France and modern authoritarian regimes is the perception of who holds power and the institution of divine right. When Louis XVI died in 1789, the authority or unquestioned belief in the divine right of kings died with him, taking its place was the belief that sovereignty rested with the people. This meant leaders were required to appeal to the public, the voting public. While modern authoritarian regimes may rely on fear, terror, and coercion, this has its limitations, and many authoritarian leaders of the 20th and 21st century find that they retain power longer if they can compel the public to acclaim them, creating an illusion of popular support. Louis XIV was a master of political theater, creating and maintaining a political image of power and authority. Louis XIV and his successors engaged in ceremonies and rituals which exuded power, authority, and the supernatural. In late 17th and 18th century, authorities were accepted to be servants of God with the responsibility to their flock, to protect their flock from ungodly ideas. Louis XIV and his successors relied on this institution of divine right uh, of the monarch and the power held by the monarchy as a result of the acceptance of this divine right. But in addition to this institution of the monarchy itself, Louis XIV and his successors build, relied on the buildup of personality cult, much, much of which was bound to the institution of divine right. As Joseph Klatz writes, the cult of kingship, which became the central expression of political feeling in 17th century France, was built upon a tradition of reverence for the monarchy. The monarch did not need to validate itself with ideology based on contract theory or concepts of social utility. The cement of the French state was set of widely held, deeply felt traditional values about authority. Which, in which case the king was not as a political actor explaining his actions and seeking approval, but a quasi-defined per personage who, whose will was the very expression 
of right action, truth, and justice. And what this meant was the king was above approach. No one criticized him. And it would have been very dangerous or socially unacceptable to question the king or criticize him. While the Sun King developed and honed a, a cult personality built on the long respected and unquestioned institution of the divine right of kings, the ancient regime was also a police state even by today's standards. A wrong word about the king or a minister could land you in the Bastille. Louis XV, Louis XIV's successor and the police appreciated the importance of public opinion Robert Darton's work on the ancient regime is primarily focused on the development of communication networks and the early start to the press in France. But his work also recounts a fascinating trend in Louis XV's reign, which passed into Louis XVI's own reign and crossed all strata of 18th century French society. And that is the exchange of body scandalous rhymes and songs regarding the sex life of the king. The rhymes and songs were traded on scraps of paper or from memory in salons, coffee houses, and known public areas in parks and squares around Paris. People embellished the rhymes, adding a line or a detail to them to make them slightly more funny or sensational. Even more interesting is how these rhymes were traded between the nobility, clergy, and servants. More irritating to the king and his mistress at the time, these rhymes spread like fire throughout the city, in part because of their sensationalism, but also because they, form in, they were formed in humorous rhymes or songs. Darton's work focuses on the networks that pass these humorous ridiculing rhymes from person to person, but also notice, notes an important pattern that emerges over time regarding the content of these rhymes. In the early years of Louis XV's reign, the gossip regarding the king and the royal court remained generally friendly, but by 1749, the tone of the gossip and the rhymes had changed. And this had to do with a circulating rhyme regarding the three sisters. The three sisters recounts the tale of a marquis and his three daughters who each served as Louis XV's mistress. The story tells how each daughters, either under the control of a French minister or in pursuit of their own political agenda, manipulated the king. The story reaches the pinnacle or the worst part in Louis' reign or a low point in Louis' reign when he took Madame de Chateau with him to the battlefront during the War of Austrian Succession and fell ill. In the eyes of the public, Louis brought defeat and illness upon himself with his adultery and incest because of his relationship with the three sisters. A spy working for the police noted the public's irritation with the king's affair in 1744, saying people are complaining, speaking ill of the government and predicting the war will have disastrous consequences. Sin on this scale would bring punishment from heaven and not just from the king, the whole kingdom. An example of this is a rhyme that goes like this, and it's translated from French. One can betray one's faith without committing a crime, expels one's friend from one's hearth, corrupt one's neighbor, wife. To pillage and steal is no longer shameful. To enjoy the three sisters all at once is no longer contrary to good morals. 
Such metamorphoses were beyond the wit of our ancestors, and we are waiting for the edict that permits all of these things. The poem condemns an income tax that was mandated by an edict in France, but without any direct reference to the tax itself. It does highlight the many public sins of the king and, and contains a tongue-in-cheek quip about awaiting an edict on permission to commit the, sins of, the same sins of the king. Following the death of Madame Chatreau, the king's mistress, um, Louis stopped visiting the city and ceased the, royal, uh, the ceremony of royal touch, which was where he basically cured the public, uh, signaling the end of the sacred king image. This also signaled the end of Louis XV's connection to the people. This desacralization or delegitimization did not occur overnight, but over a period of time, which to a certain extent may be attributed to the rampant spread of gossip regarding his sex life. And why this is so significant is because until these rhymes became kind of the uh, talk of the town, people did not question or discuss the royal affairs. They were very secretive and occurred behind closed doors. The fact that they were common, uh, common discussion among the public is, uh, was a new thing inside 18th century France. This was also further exacerbated when Louis installed Madame de Pompadour as his new mistress in 1745. By 1750, these public noises conveyed the same themes, the ignominy of the king, the degradation of him by his mistresses, and the manipulation of the mistresses by the vile courtiers. Unlike her predecessors, Madame de Pompadour had little tolerance for the rhymes about her life with the king. One poem in particular led to the exile of Count Maurepas, a member of the king's cabinet. A poem composed as a song and set to a popular tune elicited much laughter throughout Paris following a private dinner with the king, Madame Pompadour, and her cousin, Madame de Stratus. In English and without context, the poem appears relatively innocuous. And again, this is a translation from French. By your noble and free manner, Iris, you enchant our hearts. On our path, you strew flowers, but they are white flowers. The poem makes reference to Pompadour distributing bouquets of white hyacinths to each of, the din of her dinner guests. The poem is a play on words that sounds very courtly, but the words used, Flores Blanche, refer to the signs of a sexual disease. The archives of the impressive and detailed collection of these public noises speak to how much the image of Louis XV had eroded, as demonstrated in the following rhyme, again referencing Louis's mistresses. A little bourgeoisie, raised in an indecent manner, judges everything by her own measure, turns the court into a slum, the king, despite his scruples, tepidly burns for her, and, is, and this ridiculous flame makes all Paris laugh, laugh, laugh. So why do authoritarian regimes fear political humor and ridicule? Ridicule in political humor highlights and exposes the flaws or shortcomings of an authoritarian regime. 
This type of criticism can also undermine authoritarian regimes carefully cultivated image, as we saw with Louis XV. And master narratives, which support key pillars of government or regimes, such as their explaining their legitimacy, capacity to rule, or their authority to rule. As we'll discuss later, political humor and ridicule is potent, appealing to many and spreading quickly. And for these reasons, many authoritarian regimes take an intolerant view toward any form of political humor, unless it's state sanctioned. It should be noted that today's authoritarian regimes do have political humor, but this humor is used to support the regime's image and established ideas about political enemies and scapegoats, as in the case of Russia. Most writers and comedians working in Russia are veterans of the club of funny and witty people. Think Saturday Night Live, but in Russian. A long running comedy show on television. The club is known by the acronym KVN and has been in operation since 1956. In its heyday, KVN produced the best political satire in Russia, frequently aggravating, aggravating Soviet authorities. Today, KVN is another branch of Kremlin propaganda. Xenophobic and sexist sketches are now featured on the show. Racial jokes regarding the former President Obama are regularly featured. If there are political sketches at all, they are anti-Western and praise the Kremlin. One sketch featured Putin and the Russian ruble defeating, defeating the Euro and the US dollar. In China, Chinese comedians are, uh, tend to self-censor by avoiding sensitive topics. And while comedy programs and comedy shows are permitted within China, there are serious bureaucratic hurdles to getting such programs approved. In Iran, political satire is usually directed to target and criticize the West and the US in particular. Um, among Iranian youth, there is and has been a rise in political jokes, usually targeting elected officials such as former President Ahmadinejad and more recently President Hassan Rouhani and members of his administration. Political humor that veers from approved targets of criticism are censored, and in many cases, the authors of such humor are subject to punishment. Most political regimes rely on what are known as master narratives and image. These narratives help individuals make sense of the world by organizing actions and even events into intelligible sequences. The speed and ease of how most narratives are recognized and unconsciously incorporated into individual experiences illustrates the power of master narratives. The control of master narratives and daily uh, that the control that master narratives exert over daily life is a function of their ability to normalize actions and events as routine. Master narratives are a part of an interpretive process, escaping conscious detection and continuously organizing our perception of the world. When we think about authoritarian regimes, both past and present, we may be familiar with master narratives used to explain the purpose, authority, and legitimacy of the regime. Perhaps the easiest example is Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler. Most people are aware of Hitler and, Nazi, and the Nazi government's intent to not only dominate Europe, but to create a pure Aryan race. 
Master narratives of Nazi Germany included the victimization of Germany by European nations, holding Germany back from achieving full potential or greatness. These narratives also identified the Jews as being partially responsible for the problems inside Germany. Hitler in his speeches and large political rallies spoke vigorously about a strong and dominant Germany. This all coincided with print, audio, and visual symbols of German strength, power, capacity to counter any threat, as well as to build a better future. Anything that contradicted these ideas or narratives was a threat and had to be erased. Image and public perception of authoritarian regimes is bound up with regime legitimacy, authority, capacity, and power. Images and ideas which threaten these pose existential threat to the regime itself. Today, examples abound of authoritarian regimes and their leaders projecting carefully tailored images and ideas to their own, own citizens as well as the world at large. If you recall several years back, there was a series of photos of Vladimir Putin fishing, hunting, camping, and participating in judo tournaments. These images identify Vladimir Putin as a man of strength and capability. Reinforcing Putin's image of strength and capacity are songs released by famous musician artists over the last 18 years since Putin first became the president of Russia with lyrics like, now I want one like Putin who is full of strength or VVP, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin saved the country VVP defends, VVP has lifted up Russia and develops it further. VVP has saved the people. VVP takes care and keeps stability. Or another, all our country supports him. You know he's super cool, hum superhero. He is the boss, so you know that everything will go according to plan. In North Korea, the Kim dynasty is premised on loyalty to the top leader, who long has been treated with reverence and said to be capable of superhuman feats, which feed this cult personality. Much of Kim Jong-un's personality rests on the legacy of his father and grandfather. Xi in China presents an interesting case of cult personality given the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to avoid another cult personality following Mao. Since taking office in 2012, Xi has developed a public image as both the humble common man, as well as the man cleaning up the corrupt nation and leading China to a uh, place in the international world stage as a power, um, power player. State control media have provided a steady flow of personal information about Xi to make him more approachable, to give him that common man appeal sharing things like his favorite Hollywood movies, how he likes to swim and climbs mountains, or a photo essay in December 2012, which showed him riding a bike with his young daughter on the back, pushing his aged father in a wheelchair, with the headline of Man of the People, Statesman of Vision. In 2014, a website linked to the Chinese government featured Xi as a caricatured cartoon, Many believe this was an attempt by Xi to make him more appealing to the public. The supreme leader in Iran is also interesting as a cult personality or a sacred personality. 
similar to the kind of institution in uh, France in 18th century. The Article 57 of the Iranian Constitution grants the Supreme Leader absolute power. The institution of the Supreme Leader inside of Iran attributes not only political legitimacy, but also religious legitimacy within the theocratic republic. This parallels sanctity of the institution of the monarchy and divine right in the ancient regime. And the institution of the Supreme Leader fits with Max Weber's concept of sultanism, the domination exercised by the ruler's personal autonomy called patrimonial authority or sultanism. And by this expresses itself through military force and an admin system that is an extension of the ruler's household. Sometimes they hold elections to prove a legitimacy, but they never lose power to them. Uh, Ruhala Khomeini's public image held and continues to hold reverence inside of Iran, both by virtue of his role as the supreme leader, but also his religious credentials and as a main figure in the Iranian revolution. Today, Ali Khomeini's public image is reinforced by his role as supreme leader and as Khomeini's uh, purported choice to assume the role of supreme leader. To give you an idea of how he is represented or portrayed inside Iran, they use the following kind of religious honorifics to uh, accord him respect and to contribute to his image. Imam, Grand Ayatollah, Islamic world leader, supreme leader of the Islamic Republic. And when he's discussed or referenced in the press in Iran, people highlight his Islamic characteristics and skills as a leader using such words as selfless, prudent, frugal, perfect man, efficient manager, great thinker, fair, wise, kind, thoughtful. Images and narratives about state strength and capacity explain and reinforce regime legitimacy. These narratives and ideas create an image of the state and its leaders as saviors of the downtrodden and repressed, as fearless and capable of combating enemies from outside and inside the country, and defining who the enemy is, as well as the dangerous ideas which threaten the existence of the nation, not just the state. In some cases, the images and ideas provide a mission or a purpose for the regime to bring about a better nation or a group or to spread ideas beyond the country's border. Ideas or narratives which attack or denigrate the image of power, strength, and capacity are viewed as threats to this control and power. Many authoritarian regimes' power and strength are reinforced by these personality cults surrounding primary leaders. The personality cult provides leaders a perception of infallibility, strength, wisdom, and perfection. The perception of infallibility and wisdom often equates to blamelessness. Leaders are not the reason why the economy is bad or the state has not fulfilled promises to the people outside. Enemies or enemies with working within the state are to blame. The perception of infallibility also makes leaders untouchable or it makes criticizing the leaders very taboo. Some authoritarian leaders, both past and present, create and maintain a sacred quality to their image that makes any type of criticism blasphemous and unthinkable. 
Humor and ridicule undermine authoritarian and totalitarian state-created images and ideas of strength, capacity, and infallibility. And for this reason, humor and ridicule are viewed as an existential threat to most authoritarian regimes. Humor in psychology is defined as a violation of a rule. What this means is, is that for a joke or something to be funny, it violates some known pattern of logic. If we think about knock-knock jokes, the humor comes from the unexpected end of the joke, which violates the pattern of social logic. We know when someone knocks on this door and we, and we respond, who's there? I'm going to tell a joke, it probably won't land right because I'm going to explain it. Knock-knock, who's there? Boo, boo-hoo. Well, you don't have to cry about it. And there the logic is violated because of the response of boo-hoo and you don't have to cry about it. It violates the logic. Another example would be this joke from the Soviet Union. Why do KGB thugs walk around in threes? One can read, one can write, and the third keeps an eye on the two intellectuals. Again, it's about rule breaking. At the start, humor breaks rules of ideas, thoughts, and logic. Humor is also very culturally and socially nuanced, often drawing on social references generally known to specific groups or audiences. And in some cases, political jokes have their own literary style or genre, such as in Russia, where the genre of dark political jokes the anecdote or the anecdote, which became a stable of Russian humor in Soviet times. This is significant because political satire highlights these shared or known references with each other. And this leads to another feature that's important in political humor, and that's the ability to create unity or, or community through humor. When we see or hear something funny, what do we do with it? We share it with our friends and our family. You see a funny cat video, you see uh, something funny, you share it with people. And why do you do that? You do it to relive the experience of humor and laughter and to relive that experience with the shared reaction with your family and friends. And this sharing is also shaped by our assessment as to who we will share similar perceptions and humor. For example, you might share a piece of humor with your friends that you might not share with your parents because they might find it inappropriate. When we talk about political humor, we tend to share humor with others that also share our political sentiments or perspectives. Satire or political humor is an effective tool for disrupting master narratives. Master narratives by themselves contain gaps or inconsistencies that make way for counter narratives. Most master narratives are not holes, but an assemblage of repeated themes that are incorporated into, one, into stories, aphorisms, sermons, songs, and other forms with resulting tensions and inconsistencies that can be exploited. The lack of fit between the two, the connected master narratives and the gap between master narratives prescriptions and actual lived experiences. So the difference between what the narratives promise and reality. 
So Soviet promises of communist utopia versus the reality for many Russian citizens or the promises and religious prescriptions of the Iranian revolution versus the reality of everyday Iranians. Emerging from the gaps and fissures of master narratives, from a lack of fit between the perception created by the master narrative and the individual's actual real lived experience, a counter narrative chips at the society's preferred frame, exposing the hypocrisy and inequality of the master narratives. Counter narratives also appeal to outgroups, people who have been either ostracized or maligned or cast out from a society. Um, they counter narratives for outside groups create bonds and shared understanding, social cohesion, uh, creating a counter reality which aims to subvert master narratives. Counter narratives can also highlight how self-serving and cruel master narratives are by showing alternative visions of reality. Counter narratives shatter complacency and challenge the status quo. In this way, satire may be understood as a form of counter narrative as it fills the same function. Satire is often talked about as taking on the form of paradox, thus posing a challenge to the orthodox. Satire is a way for unorthodox opinion to be advanced. As with Louis XV or Soviet Russia, political humor was a way to challenge and question the status quo. According to one researcher, humor is a type of activism. It can signal through the sharing of a joke or a humorous stunt, a shared questioning of the status quo, criticizing the hypocrisy. For example, the joke which mocks a joke which mocks former Iranian President Ahmadinejad, as well as highlights the regime's strict rules separating males and females. One day, Ahmadinejad found lice crawling on his head. He took a comb and made a neat middle parting his hair. Someone asked why he did this. He replied, one side is for male lice and the other is for the females. Satire uses laughter as a weapon to diminish a subject and evoke an attitude of amusement, disdain, ridicule, or indignation, as we talked about earlier in the lecture. Uh, as noted, many authoritarian leaders are very careful in how they create their personas of strength, infallibility, and wisdom, and ridicule strips this away. The images bear eroding public legitimacy and support. For example, I'll share a yet another Ahmadinejad joke. Uh, do you know what caused cholera in Tehran? Yes, Ahmadinejad finally took a bath and washed his socks in the river Karaj. And another one, an anecdote from the Soviet Union. How do you know that Adam and Eve were Soviet citizens? They had one apple between the two of them, they had no clothes, and they believed they were living in paradise. Again, this demonstrates how they are, the, the humor is able to chip away or point a finger or poke the eye of the status quo. Satire is sometimes described as painful or playful distortion of the familiar. Another thing to think about in terms of political humor from the outside looking into authoritarian societies is tracking political humor may be a good indicator as to public attitudes. 
Robert Darton's work spanning the reign of Louis XV reflects the slow change in public attitudes based on the nature of poems and rhymes. At first, these rhymes only targeted Louis's mistresses and cabinet ministers, which wielded too much influence. Slowly, this changed, and Louis the, himself became the target, questioning his fitness to rule. The U.S. government used to collect anecdotes from the Soviet Union because they were both funny and reflected the public mood. If so, we can begin to, uh, to assess Russian public mood by the resurgence of anecdote, which have begun to circulate again in Russia. Some speak to the fear that Vladimir Putin instills, like this one. Putin opens the refrigerator and sees a plate of quivering gelatin. Stop shaking, Putin says. I'm only getting the milk. Or others that speak to Putin's ter territorial acquisitiveness. On the Estonian border, a guard, border guard is filling out Putin's entry form. Occupation, the officer asks. Not today, Putin replies. Just tourism. Or this one, which speaks to Putin's hold on power. Do you think Putin will ever relinquish the presidency? Of course. When? Immediately after the coronation. The point here, again, is to highlight how these uh, little quips, these little jokes, these shared things that not only provide some relief from a regime that may be very oppressive, but to also share a kind of shared experience, a sense of community or unity, as well as a shared opinion, a shared political opinion. And that's where the opposition starts. Most people like a joke, especially when the world around them is relatively bleak. And that was the ultimate influence for this today's lecture topic. As humans and as a society, we know on a basic level the importance and value of humor. We don't necessarily need political science or sociology or psychology research to tell us that humor has power. We know it does. Setting aside what we know from personal experience, a look at the long line of absolute monarchs, tyrants, dictators, and authoritarian regimes' attitudes towards political humor should serve as further evidence of the power of humor, in particular ridicule to challenge authoritarian regimes and galvanize opposition. The key is not to conflate humor's ability to empower opposition with sudden or significant political change. It's about change over time and building public opinion and consensus. The degradation of Louis XV's carefully honed royal persona did not occur overnight. It eroded slowly and naturally without much interference or pressure from external sources. We have witnessed authoritarian regimes lack of tolerance for ridicule beyond our own borders or their own borders, such as Kim Jong-il, who threatened the creators behind the comedy movie Team America, which included the popular song, I'm So Wrongery, sung by Kim Jong-il, portrayed as a marionette pu puppet. Another example is Kim Jong-un threatened the leads James Franco or Seth and Seth Rogen in their film, The Interview, which was later, uh, which was actually leaked following a hack of Sony. More recently, John Oliver was censored on HBO in China for his long piece on Xi Jinping, 
Noting G's comparisons to Winnie the Pooh, he is unlikely to become uncensored given his more recent piece on the Chinese egregious human rights violation in Xinjiang province against the Uyghurs. So why does Xi Dada, Uncle Xi, not like being compared to Winnie the Pooh? Xi wants to present himself as a man of the people, approachable. Winnie the Pooh is very approachable and adorable. It is because the comparison does not fit with Xi's carefully scripted image. As one observer noted, Xi doesn't do silly things. He makes no mistakes, and that is why he's above the population and unable to be questioned. And we all know Winnie the Pooh is cute, loves his honey, but he is also a silly old bear. Thank you. I'll take any questions there may be. So now we'll transition to the Q&A portion. So if you have any questions, um, feel free to comment in the Q&A section on the bottom of the Zoom screen. And it looks like we do have some questions coming in. Um, the first one, it seems as though ridicule is a potent offensive tool. Would you please discuss the characteristics of useful or successful historical counter and preventative ridicule measures? Is a strong offense the best strong defense? Um, so that's a... I think that's a tricky one, uh, historical ones. Um, the one that automatically comes to mind, I think, are um, the, the ridicule do, used during the American, uh, American Revolution. Um, uh, the colonists, um, and I think Sam Adams actually had tried his hand at this. There were a lot of um, songs and uh, um, poems that were intended to taunt or irritate uh, the British, um, certainly. Um, and in terms of like uh, offensive, I think the thing to distinguish between, you know, the, the power of ridicule as it is powerful and the distinction is to be made, is it organic coming out from the public itself um, and gaining momentum, as in they're, they've had enough, they're frustrated, reality doesn't match the projected master narrative, versus today we see, and that's the distinction I think I made in terms of Louis XV, what happened in France was relatively organic. You didn't have anybody outside France, like the British weren't sitting there outside of France feeding um, political jokes into England. They probably should have. They could have avoided maybe the Seven Years' War and possibly France aiding and abetting the American colonists. Um, but unfortunately, that or fortunately, they didn't. Um, this was completely organic. When we think of authoritarian regimes today, I think there's there's a lot of um, outside support to aid and abet citizens pushing back against authoritarian regimes, oppression of humans um, and human rights. And I think that's where you get sympathy from whether it's other governments or even nonprofits who will aid and abed. Um, I think there's some um, external groups of um, like Iranian expats. I think in my research, I came across um, an Iranian who is actually he was an engineer, a geological engineer, but he was also a cartoonist. And he fled Iran to go to Canada. I think he's in Canada now. Um, because he, he did a cartoon that ir irritated the Iranian regime. And he was 
Um, I think he was imprisoned and then he fled. Um, and he's still concerned for his safety and well-being. Um, but he has joined with other Iranian expats and cartoonists, and they have their own little group outside of Iran that also generates um, political humor directed and targeted at the Iranian regime. So in terms of, you know, how it can be used offensively, I, I think they're, again, you're getting at the just innate power of humor itself. Um, and that was the thing that when I was doing the research for the lecture, that struck me is this kind of underestimation of pow of the power and potency that it holds in and of itself, even without anybody else getting into the mix. It is so powerful that as, as I demonstrated in the lecture, many authoritarian leaders have used extreme violence or extreme punishments to, to put the kibosh on any kind of use of ridicule. I don't know if that answers the question. Thank you. We have another question. Um, how much leeway, if any, is granted to political humor in Arab nations such as Iraq, Syria, and Egypt? So Egypt's a good example because actually um, there's a pretty famous uh, uh, political satirist a la Jon Stewart who got into some trouble with, um, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the Egyptian leader. It was after the, after the fall of Mubarak. Um, and he's been censored a couple times. I think he's been fined a couple times. He's certainly been threatened. Um, and then uh, in the case of Iraq, that's been real uh, bad just in general, not just for political humor. Um, I think since the protests in October, um, there have been complete internet blackouts um, and journalists have been targeted by um, Iranian militias. Um, violently targeted, disappeared, assassinated, all of those things. So in terms of like, uh, the, you know, the, the free space to operate in the Middle East, especially, um, I think it's extremely limited. Um, the only good thing about Iraq, places like Iraq and Egypt and, and Syria is, is that unlike places like Iran, China, where they have restricted the internet and used big data to censor a lot of those online political jokes, you don't have that same problem yet inside those places. So I think the internet still serves as, a, as an outlet where you can still exchange those, those jokes without worrying too much about um, state security coming after you. And then the other thing, uh, in the case of Iran, there were the, the where I got the Ahmadinejad jokes, the thing that I kind of thought was interesting, the way that they were sharing the jokes was not online, but through SMS text. Um, so a little different than 18th century France with scraps of paper. Now they're just using different technology, same general concept. But in terms of like whether or not there is space to, to criticize and to point out the flaws in the system, there is space, but it's still very dangerous, I would say. Great. So I think that's all the questions that we had come in. Um, but I would like to thank Dr. Schindler for joining us today and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP, or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu. Thanks, everyone.